The Big Light presents Hello, I'm Sean McDonald and you're listening to Blethered on the Big Light Network My guest is music PR man Gordon Duncan Gordon is responsible for the music PR of James Bay, Tom Walker, Lewis Capaldi, Luke Lavolpe, Dylan John Thomas, Bo Anderson, Tamzine and many, many more. Drawing on decades of experience, Gordon explains just how music PR works and about the many cogs in the machine of big musicians. There are stories about Lemmy from Motorhead's answer machine, Ian Brown for the Stone Roses in the supermarket and Victoria Beckham in Glasgow. And you'll also hear about Gordon's experience of being in Sri Lanka at the time of the Boxing Day tsunami in 2004, plus the charity efforts that led to him introducing Paul Weller on stage for a fundraiser. What a life. This episode is brought to you by Debt Experts Don't Fret About Debt. If you're struggling with debt and you would like a free chat with an impartial advisor to discuss your options or to see how you can lower your monthly repayments towards debt, then visit don'tfretaboutdebt.net forward slash blethered. You can also listen to my episode with Don't Fret About Debt Senior Debt Advisor Tommy Gallagher where we discuss taking back control of your debt and the various solutions available. Don't fret about debt offer all statutory debt solutions in Scotland helping you to make an informed choice. So take the first step to dealing with your debt today. Free advice is also available from the Money Advice Service. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it. Cheers. Would you describe yourself as an academic? No. Right, so correct me if I'm wrong. Did you not do two courses at once and two educational facilities yes so you must be somewhat academic if you're able to put yourself through that <laughs> to talk me through it, it was it was right because okay. i want to know how these are connected so uh i had no clue what i wanted to do for a job or at least i hadn't connected what i was what i liked doing with any kind of career that i knew about so I'd done quite, I'd done all right at school and I'd got decent hires and stuff, um, and I wanted to go to uni, but I didn't. I mean, my God, when I look back on it, of all the things I could have done, the the highest qualified thing that I could get into at Glasgow Uni, which is where I wanted to go, was accountancy. Mm. And you know, my parents knew some people who were accountants, and they seemed to be doing quite well for themselves. So I just kind of. Went yeah okay and I got I applied for it and I got in, but uh, pretty quickly I realised that wasn't for me. Hmm. Um, but I'd got into almost from Freshers Week really I got in with a brilliant group of people who were putting events on at the uni through a thing called the Rock Society, and um, so I think I was vice president of that in my first year and then I was president of it for my second and third years at uni. But through that, we put on, I mean, literally an event every single week while in term time. So it could have been pub crawls or big gigs in the in the QM or little gigs in the bar or, you know, video nights or, you know, rock discos or parties. I mean, literally. And it was a big society. It was, I think it was, at the time, it was the biggest non-political society on the campus. So there was hundreds and hundreds of members. And um, so by the time I got to my third year of doing my course, 
I was still going to the classes and stuff. It wasn't like I was bunking out of it, but I wasn't. I wasn't doing great. Was it like a, a secondary concern? No, because I wanted to pass it. Mm-hmm. I wanted to finish it. I didn't want to leave having failed it. And I passed everything except I might have had two resets to do at the end of third year. So, uh, but I didn't have to go back because I'd done all the coursework. I didn't have to go back. Mm-hmm. I just had to do the exams. Right, yeah. So meanwhile, I knew I wasn't going to go ahead with accountancy for a job, but a friend of mine, I think somebody I shared a flat with at the time, had spotted this course at a college in Bathgate, West Lothian College in Bathgate, which was called a music business administration course. And uh, I didn't know much about it at the time, but it turns out it was really, the, it was certainly the first of its kind that had a, so it was like an HNC yeah. qualification in business studies, but focused on the music industry. So I thought, well, if I can get into that and do that for a year, and then I can do just do my resets at the end of term, yeah. I can finish both at the same time. So I applied for that course and got on it. Uh, and it was, it was absolutely brilliant. They gave us a, they basically gave us an office with a phone and a fax machine and a wee bit of money and said, you've to sign an artist and release a single <laughs> at the end of the year. Off you go. Where do you even like, did you know where to start? Had, had you thought after having, you know, run the, the events at Glasgow uni, did it give you a sort of inkling or was it really just out into the world and try and suss this out? Uh, well, we all had a bit of an inkling between us. I don't mm. think any of us, we'd all done similar things. We'd all done similar things that brought us to that point. Mm. But you're sort of out in the world doing it without anyone telling you if you're doing it right or not. Like I used to play in bands, you know, in my, in my teens and twenties. And rather than, uh, we never had an agent or a manager or anything. We used to book our own, you know, the church hall or the, or the village hall or whatever, right, all around Scotland. We'd book it ourselves. We'd bring the PA. We'd sell the tickets. We'd go up a week in advance and put posters up. I'd go and knock on it. <laughs> I'd go, literally, on the day of a show, I'd turn up at the local radio station, <laughs> knock on the door and go, oh, hello. Uh, we're playing a gig in town tonight. Have you got? Can I come on and talk about it for five minutes? And more often than not, they'd go, uh, "Well, all right." <laughs> but I don't think that wasn't what you're supposed to do. Right? Days, eh? Nobody did it. So we were doing things all the wrong way as far as the music business is concerned. But so, so this course kind of brought a lot of people together and kind of went right you're not wrong, mm-hmm. but just apply it in a way that, you know, sort of fits more into what the industry, how the industry works. The music industry to me seems to be a real collaborative collaborative effort. You know, everybody's doing sort of loads of different things. And do you think going into there at that early point, did that kind of make you realise that everybody can have their own wee cog and instead of you trying to do every single thing, it's more a case of intelligently building up a network and then when you need X done you can go to person you X. you you have much more knowledge and sort of idea of how it works than I did when I started <laughs> I think we well, that's just, only through my exposure to people like you and or people like Artie Josie or people like DF yeah, Consorts you know you're absolutely right and of course you know of course on any big act there's a there's a big big team behind them 
and you've all got your uh you know your bit of expertise that you kind of put into that mix mm-hmm. and a really good team you you all have ideas and everybody bounces off each other and you kind of bring it together into one big sort of um you know you're trying to create momentum behind the artists and support what they're doing yeah. they've got the talent and the the songs and we're trying to bring help them to get out to the public so that the public gets a chance to hear them and i think what that course allowed us to do was uh it it had this business studies thing and it gave us a lot of you know what is a co- what is copyright what is publishing what are royalties what's a contract you know th- mm-hmm. that kind of practical stuff that i had never really been exposed to through the sort of DIY way I was doing it. So it put a lot of framework around it, but they didn't they didn't go, you must do it this way. So you were allowed to make mistakes. Yeah. So we ended up signing a band called Smile from Edinburgh, who were a kind of pop rock type bat four piece. Really great. The singer's a guy called Dean Owens, who still plays uh, now. He's fantastic. He'd, he supported somebody at the castle in Edinburgh the other week. Uh, I it was Texas played I, recently. I think it was Texas. Texas. Yeah. So Dean's still around, and um, and we we got the single. It's called Obvious, and we got the single to number one hundred and twenty-five in the <laughs> national charts. Now, at the time, we were absolutely devastated because, in our minds, this should be a top forty. <laughs> so one hundred and twenty-five felt like, yeah. oh, we haven't really achieved there. But looking back on it now, because this was in the old days when it was all just physical. You know, and we had been round slogging round all the record shops in Scotland selling the stock. Mm. <laughs> I mean, literally, we did all of it. So when I look back on it now, I actually think 125 was not bad. Given no, it's not bad at a all. A tiny budget, and it was 15 absolute <laughs> knives in an office in a college in Bathgate. A couple of questions about the the course. See, when it was set up, the music business administration was there any sort of connection between? The record industry is—is is that like a way of them sort of saying, "Well, we're going to pick our own pool of people from here"? Um, there was there was a really great connection. There's like the guy that ran it is a guy called Gordon Campbell, who you should speak to. He's amazing. Um, he set it up. He was a he's a songwriter and a music producer and stuff in his own right. And he had he set up this course, the first of its kind. He got the people that he knew in the industry to come up and talk at it and it ended up the money that that we got to help you know release our record came from i think it was the bpi which is the british photographic institute which is the the trade body for yeah. the record industry right so uh we would get i mean all sorts of guest speakers coming up to bathgate college like morris oberstein who was i think he was this guy at the top of Sony at the time, or oh god, I can't remember who else. Uh, Waterman, uh, Pete Waterman, Pete Waterman came up, Shaken Stevens came up to do a <laughs> guest talk, uh, and all the you know, loads of people from, from the industry came up and met us. And we're like, This is mad, you're just in a wee classroom at this college, yeah. And then we got to go down and do work experience at labels. Oh, that's cool. Where did um, you go? I didn't go to a label. I went to... Oh, no, I did. Actually, the first year I did... Um, uh, it was EMI video department, like the retail videos, so the live concerts, yeah. and 
movies and stuff. So I went there, and then the second one because I I, I, went, I ended up going back and helping out on the course the second year, and I went to a, a law firm in London, a music business law firm, which was the one that was <laughs> they were in charge of. Do you remember that Jive Bunny? No. Oh, your older listeners might remember. There's a track called Jive, Jive Bunny. Bunny. It was a single, and it had loads of. Like uh, a novelty track? It was a novelty track, but it had loads of samples in it. Right. Like loads of them, but they hadn't cleared any of the samples. <laughs> and so this law firm was in charge of all of the, <laughs> the <laughs> legal wranglings. And when I was there, it was this was years later, and they still had loads of unwinding of this thing. So that was quite interesting. And then I ended up, uh, I, I got, I, I decided to leave because I was helping out in the course. I decided to get down to London to try and get a job before the class that I'd just taught oh, right. pretty clever. left. Because I thought, if I don't want to be competing against this lot, because they're pretty good. <laughs> so uh, I got a chance to work in the post room at MTV, which I took, which lasted about three days. And then after that, I got a post room job at BMG Records, as it was then. And from there, I got a press job a couple of weeks later. The press was a press job at M and G Records. No, that was that was. At oh wait, this that. is Arista Records. It was at Arista, yeah. Yeah, Arista. Sorry. Yeah. What um, what is the kind of what is the makeup there like? What is the sort of landscape like? Were they, you know, how did they work? Arista was at the time, um, it was part of BMG, which had uh, RCA Records was the other side, right? Arista and whatever other labels they had. Arista was things. It was Europop was big so that was like Hadaway Dr Alban literally I was just about to say Hadaway yeah <laughs> yep, we had all that I've got a great Hadaway story um, and then we also had when I got there it was the last couple of weeks of Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You being no- number one ah yeah so it had been number one for about 15 weeks when I got there uh, and the whole Bodyguard album so that had been massive for them so I came in on the, back, on the end of that mm-hmm. period but we had, oh, I mean, all sorts. They had the big American sort of hat acts. And we had TLC, was fantastic. We did the Crazy, Crazy Sexy Cool album. Yeah. Um, so that was good. And a lot of hip-hop as well. We had Notorious B.I.G., we had Usher. That's so cool. We had, so it was a totally broad cross-set. We had Foreigner, a Foreigner album. I got to work with Motorhead cool. on a track while I was there. Because um, we had the soundtrack album to that Airheads movie. Right. Uh, and the Motorhead track, they had done a track for it, which was called Born to Raise Hell. So what would you what would you be doing? Would you be helping them get press exposure and yeah. coverage? Yeah. So that must have been, what was that like, going from Bathgate to in the, like London and amongst all these stars? Did you kind of just take it in your stride? Or was it a wee bit like, oh, Jesus, this is mental? Because also it would have been the days of, excess when expenses were a lot more uh-huh. lax when there wasn't any mobile phones oh, yeah. all these things combined okay so when i got to arista we had one desktop computer between the three of us <laughs> in the press office and it had a green screen right we had one mobile phone between the office and it was a flip big, big flip top brick and so if you were leaving the office you got to take the phone with you <laughs> but you didn't have one of your own when i started uh Proper email came in while I was there. So this, I mean, it was, <laughs> when I think this is 30 years ago. Yeah. So it was kind of odd. But yes, there was, 
I remember getting there and thinking, "Oh my god, it's all it's all true. <laughs> Everything yeah. you might have heard is true." And then some. Uh, but it was great, and the you know I had a I had a really great boss who was. I mean, I was still really green. I was twenty two, mm. and as you say, you know, just off the just off the boat, really. Aye, and, soaking uh, wet behind ears. Going from a very small. Uh, 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 Experience of the industry on a very small level, and coming in and then being expected to go mm. out with artists and you know take them on their press days and stuff. Um, there, I mean, is there anything else that stands out for that point? There's probably those sort of go to. Well, the Motorhead thing was a career high point. Yeah, that's cool. Because I was a big Motorhead fan. Lemmy was a bit of a hero to me. I, I just loved. I loved his music. I loved his attitude. And so, uh, nobody else in the office was really into the music but they knew I was so I got to work it so I speak to him and he was in, he was in LA and uh, we so there was on, I had to try and persuade him to do some radio thing that was a bit of a funny he didn't really get it and it was fair enough it was a bit of a funny concept but I was trying to persuade him to do it but uh, because of the time difference we were faxing back and forwards <laughs> right so I'd sent him along, right, here's why you should do it, blah, 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 blah. And he just sent me a, a fax back and it just said, Gordon, you're a silver tongue devil. All right, I'll do it. <laughs> and I didn't keep the fax, but I did have a fax that had let me call me a silver tongue devil. Anyway, um, we had some phone interviews to do and I had set up one for, it was the Sunday Post, Ross King. King was the Sunday Post music columnist. Guy's been everywhere. He's great. Because of the time difference, this phone phone interview was going to be at midnight and whoever the journalist was couldn't do it uh, at that time. So I, they said to me, right, you just do the chat. We'll take the quotes and we'll turn it into the feature because we still really want to do it. So I called Lemmy's LA phone number at midnight from my crappy, horrible flat that I shared with three mates in <laughs> Southfields. And he doesn't pick up. And it's his answer phone, which, by the way, was Lemmy singing uh, Wild Thing on an acoustic guitar. But it was... Wild Thing! Do, 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 do. You make my phone ring! It's Lemmy, leave a message, right? So I leave a message for Lemmy on the thing, and I'm like, right, fine. Go to bed. That's not going to happen. He's not, there's no way he's calling me back. He'll be out living the rock and roll lifestyle. So about three in the morning, I get shaken awake in my bed by my flatmate with the immortal line, Gordon, Lemmy's on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to... <gasps> what? Shit yourself. So I have to wake up out of, you know, my middle of the night, like absolute dead sleep, and then interview Lemmy on the phone for the Sunday Post. Did you ever get to meet him? I didn't. I never no. did. Just no, a sort of long distance, did, unfortunately. But um, but I had a good chat with him, and it ran. And uh, I can't I can't remember much about the chat because I was one in awe and Aye. two still like half asleep. That would go by in a bit of a a bit of a blur. Yeah. Um, Lemmy's on the phone though. Oh. When you you made them, was it ninety five? You made the move to M and G Records as head of press, product manager. Is that? Oh, I did. Is that correct? I did. Um, yeah. Ugh, I I left. Somebody else came in as my boss at Arista, and <clears throat> I didn't fit there. 
Faced in fit what they wanted in the department. So it was a shame actually because I, I I liked it there. But anyway, I left and uh, I got offered this job. So it was an independent label, and I had a couple of friends that worked there. So yeah, I did product management and PR, and uh, it was actually owned by a guy called Michael Levy, who's now Lord Levy, who is the guy that was Tony Blair's sort of fundraiser. All right, okay. When when Blair was interesting. Um, so that would have been when you were working there then, just I, in the run-up to the landslide victory in 97? Yeah. Did, did, right. did you ever have any, did you ever cross paths with Tony Blair? I or did not. No. no. No, but we used to get a lot of calls because the music, because uh, Levy was, you know, he was a big, he was a big figure in the industry in that, um, you know, he'd, he'd had a label called Magnet Records in the 70s and had, I mean, I suppose they, they they were they were sort of precursor to what Simon Cowell ended up doing with mm-hmm. you know the big TV songs yeah although but he also they had some good stuff as well and anyway uh, this was his next label but we never had any we didn't have any big hits it was a it was a fun couple of years but it wasn't I wouldn't say it was the <laughs> I learned a lot but it wasn't the the sort of I wasn't going to stay in that world Aye. I don't think. Had you started having the sort of inkling that you wanted to go out on your own after quite a few years? No, I'd thought about it, but I, I ended up getting made redundant from there because the label, I think the label got sold to another major or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went to Polydor at that point, which uh, was my original boss from Arista was the head of press at Polydor. She, it wasn't a, it wasn't a permanent job. It was like a rolling monthly contract. Yeah. She had a space to fill in the department at the time. So she said, you want to come and do it? But that was fantastic. I loved that there. Cause it was we a had, massive label to be at. Oh, it was fantastic. And it was, um, what did we have there? Well, they had boys on was the big sort of pop thing at the time. I didn't really work on that, but we had Queens of the Stone Age we had um, Ian Brown solo album, oh. first solo album. Um, what else? That was the that was the big ones for me personally. Music. Yeah, you would have made a hell of a lot of contacts during those years of being in London. Did you kind of hold on to those? Is it the is it the same faces or is it something that's evolving and developing all the time with new people coming in? There was a really good. I sort of specialised. I did all sorts. I did national press, but I I loved doing regional press because I loved the touring part of yeah uh-huh. of everything. So I kind of took on a lot of the regional stuff. So, but at that time, you had all the big regional newspapers had a daily their own daily showbiz page that did a lot of music. They would have an eight or sixteen page supplement once a week. You could get spreads in on an artist if they were coming to town on other days if they were big enough. Yeah. So you had and and that times every major town in the country. What's different now is there's a lot more content for those papers is taken centrally and, you know, we all know that the newspaper industry has had to contract a bit because yeah. they don't sell papers anymore. But at the time, that was fantastic because you could go out on the road with the act. You could see, you would get, you know, five, ten reviewers in at every show. You could see meet them in person. You know, the job was really speaking to them. Yeah telling them about the new acts, sorting them out with the big acts. And it was really good days, actually. 
is there a bit is there a trade off like if you've if you've got a young an up and coming artist that you believe in and you want coverage for them will you mm. say right you can have massive person A but you need to write about smaller person Z is that a wee sort of bargaining tool I, I wouldn't say well I don't do it as blatantly as that I think that's a bit crass mm. because first of all you want people to be into the act yeah so really the job is the first bit of the job is finding the natural supporters the people that like the music and and and, and get the artist from the start I think, I mean, when you've got a relationship with a journalist, it's more that, the, and the publication, they understand that if there's a new act that they can help get up the ladder, then in a couple of years, they'll be the big, big act mm. that sells them newspapers or gets them clicks. Um, so I wouldn't, honestly, it's not something that I do, but... Yes, I think there's an understanding there yeah. of the process that today's small act might become tomorrow's yeah. big act. I, su- I suppose people should trust your judgment as well, because well, you're, you're going to work with people that you believe in for the most part, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, you try and you try and save your real big enthusiasm. No, that's not true. I mean, I'm, I'm generally I'm pretty lucky. I like most of the acts that I work with now. But sometimes something comes along that's pretty special and you just go to people that, that I'm not just saying it, this is the real thing. And yeah. You should check it out, at least check it out and see what you think and give it, a, give it a go. I think what's different now with digital media is that there's a lot of pressure on journalists to deliver stories that get them the audience they need yeah. on a daily basis. Or clicks. So there's, there's maybe not... There certainly aren't the dedicated music journalists at every paper now. So so it changes a lot and you're trying to find who's actually interested in music, mm. but they're not going to be a music journalist there doing everything. Yeah, covering all so sorts of like a staff writer. Yeah, it's really different. We, you end up going, do you end up going out on your own? Was that from 1998? Did you feel as if, was your hand forced a wee bit? Um, a little bit. There was a couple of things I didn't think I was very corporate. I didn't see myself, uh, you know, rising through the ranks. Just looking at the labels that I'd worked for, I, there was definitely an independent, uh, slightly rebellious, uh, anti-establishment bit <laughs> still in me. Yeah. Not in a not in an antagonistic way, but I just didn't see myself playing the corporate game. Particularly so at Polydor, it was this rolling contract, uh, and it wasn't at the time there wasn't a job there. So I just said to my boss, Look, if I what if you were to give me a, an independent contract to do the work I'm doing here, but that means that I can go and look for some other work as well? And they just said, Yeah, great. So that was, I think, the crossover was. Ian Brown was certainly the big act that I took that came with me um, and there was maybe a handful of other acts that, that I did from that point <clears throat> and then it was still like well I'll give this three months if I can get some more work and make it make it viable hmm. so I was just working from my flat It's not not a bad act to be taking with you Ian Brown, do you still, are you still in contact with Ian Brown? 
I haven't been in contact with. I just I don't work with him. He's fallen moment. off a bit of a cliff recently in the last wee while. It seems. Ian. Right, Ian's an absolute diamond. I love the guy to bits. I had a great time working with him, and I got quite friendly with him. We didn't. We lived quite close to each other for a little while, so we would see each other in the supermarket and stuff. And then seen Ian Brown in the supermarket with carrying his basket, getting his vegetables. You know, it's, it's a definitely a double take moment. Yeah. But um, yeah, he always had his own, his own opinion and his own way of doing things, yeah. and you know, a certain eccentricity. I think. Where were you working with him at the time that he was on T four circa two thousand and four, uh, and he was basically said he was going to punch fuck out of Steve Jones on the couch. Do you remember that clip? Uh, no, but there was a couple. <laughs> Uh, I took the call from the Manchester Evening News when he had been arrested on a flight for saying something to an air stewardess. That what would it cause f- alarm? Aye, well he got uh, arrested. And the con- what? And the something like the allegation was that he threatened. He said something. A bomb threat. He didn't. I don't. I'm not going to say what he said, but he. The, it was taken as that he was threatening. Right. Can't be messed Knowing him, I know that he wasn't. Right. But what he said was not was completely, you know, out of order. Yeah. So anyway, he got arrested and I got the call about that. We also had another call where at the office where um somebody had been as far as we knew, somebody who was pre- pretending to be Ian was calling round reviewers who had given his <laughs> album a stinker and saying fucking, you know, how dare you and slagging them off on the phone and we were like nah, that, doesn't, that doesn't sound like Ian he's a lovely man uh, but it turned out it was Ian <laughs> it was him the, uh, the clip the T4 clip was like I think he was explaining that he did like capoeira or crap I must mean capoeira which is like a sort of Brazilian martial art through right. like a mix of uh, fighting and dance or something and that guy Steve Jones said something like Oh, do you fancy giving us a wee demonstration just now? And basically Ian Brown straight off the bat was like, I'll fucking knock you out, mate. Like, who do you think you're talking to? <laughs> and it's just like a famous clip that kind of sometimes continues I, to... I, I, I must admit, I haven't actually seen that one. But I did have a lot of laughs with him. And um, yeah, it was it was an, an adventure. And he actually called me on the first day. He was the only artist that called me oh, really? on the first day. It's a bit Jerry Maguire, in it? He said, I'm, I'm, it's all right, I'm, I'm with you. Good luck. Shout and show me their money so down the phone. Was, that was good. See what you're saying, um, that you didn't see yourself as being corporate or kind of fitting in. Yeah. It would seem to me, like, on the surface, that that is everything the music business is. So maybe I would expect that artists would identify more with you than they would with, quote-unquote, a suit or just some corporate figure who kind of uh, doesn't... Or no. do you feel they maybe they feel as if they need that stewardship like the other ones that are... Reckless and, and creative. I, I, I'm not. I'm not critical. So, you know, I, most of my really good pals work in the music industry, and a lot of them have risen through the ranks and become really successful. And the other corporate ones. So I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not slagging anybody off. Who's no, no. I think it'd be slagging. Label. I think it's it's more me. I yeah. I didn't think that I had the right qualities. Right. Okay. And I thought I would be happier. Rather than sitting there worrying about, have I, and also at the time I was on a monthly contract, right, which would get renewed the week before it was due to be renewed. I didn't mm-hmm. know, so it wasn't very stable. And uh, I just thought I'm going to be happier. At least I'm going to take the responsibility into my own hands. 
and luckily they said yes let's do it so about a month later because it wasn't financially viable the, the deal wasn't wasn't mm. nearly enough but a, a friend of mine had gone to be the head of press at Virgin Records and I'd called him and left a message he'd started on the day there on the day that I'd started as an independent so I left him a message and I just said if you've got any work going I've just, I'm doing this now anything you can put my way would be really mm. useful so he called me a month later and said right uh, I've got some work in fact would you like to do regional press for the whole label and we can give you a retainer so I said that'll do me that's very decent so that was uh, Spice Girls Chemical Brothers Massive Attack and various other do you know, I don't know why I knew you were going to see the Spice Girls there. <laughs> I don't know why that was at the forefront of my mind. Did you get to work with them if they came up, did they come up to Glasgow and stuff? I worked with them all over. It was their second album. And I first met them. I had to go to Birmingham to do some promo with them. Because I, I was still living in London at the time. Um, so I had to go to Birmingham. And they were doing some interviews backstage before a, sh before a show there. Probably at the NEC, I think. So that was the first time I met them. And then I worked right through that album. And then I did all of, at one point or another, I did uh, all of their solo stuff following the end of the band. Mm. The only one I didn't really work so closely with was Jerry because she left. She was the first one to go in. Aye. She was there when I first started working, but she left not that long after. What what was it? I actually have to give a special mention to Louise McLean because she is like the biggest Spice Girls fan ever. So is Craig Johnson actually something that we can some wee weird thing that we kind of bond over. Although Louise will be raging that I've now called that weird, <laughs> but it is man. Let it go, Louise. It's been twenty five years. Fuck's sake. <laughs> um, no, I know it stays. It stays with you. Some are some great tunes. What, what were they? Because they were like a juggernaut, weren't they? Yeah. They kind of went to like this whole new level. Like, what well, was it like? It was amazing. When I, when I started with, I hadn't been there for the the whole from scratch rise thing. Yeah. But um, when I came in, it was massive. And I remember walking into that backstage area and Fender had delivered them personalised straps that were all decorated in their own, you know. Right, yeah. The, you know, the, the different sort of themed guitars. I'm like, bloody hell, that's five, you know, that, that to me that was big as, yeah. as, a, as a guitar fan. I'm like, right, okay. And then, you know, it was the big arena shows at that point. But they were lovely right from the start. The first time I met Mel B, I was waiting outside the dressing room door and I'm looking over there and Beckham's, David Beckham's there <laughs> playing keepy-uppies with somebody else who I didn't recognise. I'm standing outside their door for, the, for them to come out so I could take the interviewer in. And Mel comes out and just just opens the door right in front of me and goes, Has anyone got a fag? <laughs> I smoked. I'm like, yeah, here you go. Thanks. <laughs> Slams the door again. I'm like, all right, we're going to be all right here. And they were tons of fun. I, I actually genuinely, I, I, I got to, for a period, I got to know them yeah. a little bit. And they were all just really good fun. Do you find that in order to be particularly successful, you have to be nice? Because there's a lot of people that could sabotage you. If they wanted to, if you were an arsehole to them, I think you can get away with a lot on the when you're successful. I think the difference is, inevitably, at some point, there's going to be a dip. Mm. If you've been an arsehole, people, people are less likely to stand by you and help you. Yeah. In the dip, 
that's that's the key to it for me. I've seen that with a couple of people. Because you're naturally, if somebody's been an arse to you... You don't forget it, not, do you? You know, you might have to put that to one side. But at the point at which they need you more than you need them... Yeah. Are you going to... Are you going That's to go true. out of your way? Remember, what is it they say? Be nice people on the way up. You don't know who you're yeah. going to meet on the way back down. Exactly. It's Some, really simple. But as I say, most people that I've come, met in the artist side of it are mm-hmm. nice. Generally, if they've had to work and if they've got a work ethic, if they, are, if they come from a background that values hard work, yeah. they're going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Because they, it's a job. All of that fame stuff comes and it's weird and whatever. But if you're comfortable in yourself and you've got good people around you that don't let you know that will help you not get carried away with all that, you'll be fine. Yeah. The only times it's really been a, an issue, and I say it was very few times, is when maybe with a couple of pop acts where it's happened really, really, really quickly, and they forget about the thirty people that are sat around a table who worked really hard to help them to get that overnight success and then it can be a little bit like you know dismissive as if I don't need you Mm. when in actual fact they were the key components of them part of it you know it's just it's just a sort of mutual respect like any job you know don't treat me like an an idiot yeah be aware of who helped you get to where you're getting but those the the Spice Girls as people I found really I mean I had some funny funny times with them uh I had to walk, I had Victoria Beckham coming up to do something in Scotland. And this was, we had, there was no security or anything. It was me and her, and I think her PA and one other person. And we flew into Glasgow Airport and we're, we're walking out. It's not the same layout it is now. There used to be just an L-shaped bit that you came out and turned right. And then at the end of that was where people met you you know, off the plane, but there was a screen in the corner so you could see who was waiting. Yeah, I remember that. (laughs) And uh, just this random guy comes up beside Victoria. She's walking in front of me. This random guy comes and walks beside her and he says, oh, I I don't want to bother you, but do you mind if I just walk out next to you because my wife and son or daughter are waiting at the other end. I can see him on the screen. She's like, brilliant. So she takes him by the arm. <laughs> she gets his name. She gets the wife's name. She gets the kid's name. This is in like the ten seconds it takes. So they see, they see the dad walking arm in arm with Victoria Beckham in a just tracksuit or jeans or whatever, and a skip cap on, walking out, chatting away like they're old pals. They get to the end, and the, the I can see the family's faces and things like that. <laughs> just jaws dropped. What the hell? And uh, she goes, anyway, nice to meet you, John. Nice to see you again. Oh, this must be, we, Tamsin, nice to see you. And hi, Jean. And off we go. And I'm looking back and they're just like, what the hell? And she's just laughing. That's funny. Know, I like that. It was part. like playing with it. Yeah. And, uh, she's, she's renowned for being very funny, isn't she? Or having a good sense of humour. Well, the, behind, when they don't, I think her thing was trying to keep something <clears> back. <throat> For herself, yeah. So she would be very. She's looks like she's relaxed a lot now. But anytime there was a camera on her, you know, the the trademark kind of 
sort of serious face, but she she was hilarious. You know, if if I was getting like publicly battered and castigated for everything I did, including every wee facial expression, I would probably also just be stony faced because you're like you don't want to give anybody no any any entity battle. Well, on that same trip, we for some reason it had gone out in the press that they were staying at Cameron House or somewhere, and I didn't didn't deny that. You know, we never set anybody straight, but we were staying at the, that hotel next to Queen Street in George Square. <laughs> right, the millennium. So we literally, and there was it was all over the press. Cameron House, Cameron House. All the press were down there, stock sitting outside, <laughs> waiting for her to come out. We were sat in the window in that hotel, right at George having Square. a drink in George Square. Yeah, probably yard, yards away from the tabloid offices. We're as well. literally there, and nobody bats an eyelid. You know, I can't remember who told me this story. I can't remember if somebody told me it or if I heard it somewhere. But there's a story of somebody who went along with her pal. Uh, that was a fuck man that's going to drive me nuts basically their pal works for a a record label and was like I'm going to see this act in London do you want to come went to see the act and went shite and left and it was Ed Sheeran yeah, and and never signed him (laughs) I think he actually wasn't he wasn't that great when he first started out have you have you had any experiences like that where you went to see somebody and thought nah not for me and then went on to be massive I'm the opposite right I'm the world's worst A&R guy I could not do that job. I go the ones I love are never the ones that the ones that I think no let, let's rephrase that. I don't know what's going to be successful. Right. From from the off. I can say that's a brilliant singer and I want to work with them. But I don't I don't I, I go very much on my gut instinct. Mhm. And thankfully, it's not my job to spot them in the <laughs> yeah. early, the very early days, because I just, I don't think I see in the way that A and R people necessarily. Not that I think it's a superpower, yeah. but um, it's not for me. I think it's probably the same way in which a football scout will identify certain qualities in a player that the average sort of person isn't really going to notice. Because I think I'd be terrible. Because again, two thousand nine. I've got a really weird thing made for dates, right? This was the 30th, 30th of January, 2009. And I went to see Las Vegas performing at a Wella Shockwaves thing oh, yeah. at the what was then the Carling Academy, is now the O2. And they had a support act. And I walked out. I was like, that is fucking terrible. Like, really? It sounds bad, but I was like, I can't listen to that. And it was Florence and the Machine, who within about a year or two were massive. But at the time, I was like, nah. Well, I saw Oasis at the 100 Club in London uh, supporting a Scottish band called Whiteout that I really liked and I was there to see Whiteout mm. and I saw Oasis in that 100 Club which is about, I don't know, 250 people and I stood there watching it I'm like, that's yeah, alright yeah. get them off, I want to see Whiteout I mean, it's you funny know that, isn't it? I'm, I, so I, I wouldn't have picked them See, I would say as, that that is a, like a talent to I see I would have that. picked... Liam as an amazing frontman, mm. and I went on to like them, you know. Yeah. But I, no, I, I'm not. What the, the acts usually because I, I generally work for labels, so that sort of filtering process has already been done. It's taking place. By the time it comes to me, so my job is really to say, right, this is a talented person. Uh, what's the thing that I can help them draw out that will help them to reach? you know, mm-hmm. the rest of the world. So what what do you try to draw out? Is it their personality, their character? 
Because the music will yeah. speak for itself, but if you're putting them for interviews, what is the modus operandi there? You just try and let them be themselves. And, you know, the the first time people do interviews, they're, you're, it's a strange, strange experience. Uh, if you're a nice person, you won't be comfortable particularly talking about yourself. You won't have worked out what you're you know, which are the bits that people find interesting and which are the bits that are not going to be so interesting. Yeah. That's a process. But what I try and say to people is, don't worry about any of that. You'll figure it out. Be yourself. If you say something that... And, and also, nobody that interviews you in that first part of your career is doing it for any other reason than they like you. They're not out to trip you up. They're not mm. out to get some horrible story. That stuff just comes when you're already famous because there's no value in it. When nobody knows you, yeah. So you just you're trying to make them comfortable. You're trying to say, don't worry about anything. Be in the moment with the person that's interviewing you, or in the thing in the bit of promo that you're doing. Enjoy it for what it is. Enjoy it in the moment. Be yourself. Let yourself out, and we've got your back. Yeah, that's essentially what it is. It's it's really that simple. And then the the having your back bit is just making sure that you know it's. You're you're speaking to the right people that understand you, that you're, you know, kind of maximising their, for want of a better word, the reach of the media that you put put them in front of. That mm -hmm. everything you do is going to make a little bit of difference and feed in at the right time yeah. into the overall campaign. Because I do sort of press and online, and then there's somebody else that will do national radio, somebody that'll do regional radio, somebody that'll do TV. Somebody will do marketing, digital, you know. So there's all these elements that, that are work, work, trying to work together on their own little bits of this kind of jigsaw puzzle so that at some point, everything, the right song, the right press, the right radio, the right promo so comes together at a time that, bang, right, you, you, you suddenly reach a lot of people and hopefully it's a record that everybody likes and they go, oh, yeah. Great, and suddenly you're famous. Mm -hmm. Look at LF System, right? Slightly different. That's come from just a really great track. Yeah. But nobody had heard of that band outside of West Lothian, well, 12 weeks ago, or however long they've been. <laughs> I know, it's actually meant. And it? suddenly they're a record-breaking, you know, the longest dance single. God knows what records they've got now. But, I mean, yeah. now everybody knows that name who listens to music. But three months ago they didn't. It's incredible. And the other thing that I say to people is, I know this, when, when you're playing in a pub to five people and nobody knows you, it can seem, what the hell am I doing here? This is ridiculous. This is just a pipe dream. Yeah. How is it ever going to happen? Well, guess what? Every single famous musician has started in exactly the same place with exactly the same thoughts of, like, this is impossible I just don't see how this works. I suppose And that. then at some point, the thing happens. Whatever the thing is, happens. Yeah. And they're playing the hydro or, you know. So that, I suppose that's what separates the people that do go on to do it. Because if you're, if you're truly doing it for a love of it, then, right, okay, yeah, we can all be sort of deterred a wee bit when things are not going our way or we think, what is the point in this? But you push through because you're like, I really love my art. I, I, love, my it, yeah. I love my craft. I well, love what I'm it. doing. You you can't start you can't start because it's so unpredictable, right? It doesn't matter who's it doesn't matter how much money's been spent on you or 
who's on your team it, it there's a random element to it yeah. that you cannot predict and it's like you know everything has to the stars have to align in a particular you can do an awful lot to make sure that if the stars do align you're in the right place yeah, and that's i guess that's our job is if we can get all this stuff going, if we can push the boulder up to the top of the hill and then the right bit of wind blows behind it, it'll roll. Mm. That's really what you're trying to do. But you couldn't have predicted, you know, with Lewis, for example, you couldn't have predicted that someone you loved would have been as big a hit as it was. You could say this is a, you can say this is a great act, a great artist with a great voice and some cracking songs and all the you know good stuff that goes on around him but you couldn't have predicted and i think anybody that tells you that they did is a liar because i was in the meetings <laughs> we knew that that was a great track but we did not you can't say this is going to be a record-breaking song because like you know we, number one in america and all yeah we him it is such a it's not i was going to say it's a peculiar one uh, in the sense of i there's, there is no way you could have predicted that. Do you think because he is so, like, borderline frustratingly likable, like, do you think that just propels it's really him? really annoying, isn't it? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, like it propels him even further. Like, I was saying to him at um, Craig and Louise's wedding again, oh. I was saying, like, the, act, the set was amazing at Transmit, and I was like, but it could have. I said, I think I would have enjoyed it just as much, even if you never sang. Because it was like a fucking stand-up comedy act. <laughs> well, it is funny. I mean, it's so unique. The combination of really terribly, terribly sad, <laughs> depressing music <laughs> with this... Well, really self-deprecating humour. I mean, it's almost like, you know, he's just a genuinely funny guy and he'll slag himself off more than anybody else. Well, that's it. You uh, take the piss out. You know, it's pure Scottish. Yeah. It's like, I'll get the digs in at me first. Before anybody before else anybody can. goes at me. And I wonder if that's... Because I feel like, on one hand, I feel bad saying that. Do you think it's because he's so likeable? Because the it's music... It's the combination. Aye, because the music on its own is... I mean, it, it stands up against any well, sort of okay. scrutiny. Look at it this way. When Bruises came out, the very first single, which was released independently before he'd even signed, and that got to 25 million views, that was not because anybody knew he was Mr Funny. Hmm. You know, your mate, your mate down the pub banter yeah right? that was on the strength of that song yeah this that was it was starting to come at that point but it didn't it hadn't happened by then the first time that the that the the funny stuff really came uh became a thing in the media was when he was doing the, the transmit where he was for where he first played and the scottish son had done you know a supplement he with, did the king touch stage aye aye and the Scottish son had done a, he wasn't even the lead act in it, but he was, you know, his interview was part of their preview coverage. And I think the headline was something like, there's no hiding place now or something. And he did that video, Oh, That's Me Famous, where he first did the sunglasses and he was talking about, oh, now I'm, that's it, I'm not going to be able to go down to Toby Carvery with my family now. It's <laughs> going to be, oh, you that guy, there's no hiding place. That's Me Famous. And he did that whole riff. Yeah. And then the Scot I saw it and I was like, that's brilliant. The Scottish Sun saw it. They ripped the video and put it on their own, 
you know, uh, on a new story on the website, which took off. So the whole thing was a was like a completely unplanned, yeah. virtuous circle. I'd set up the Sun interview before Transmit. That's my job. Mm-hmm. Get the artist in that. We need some people to know who the hell this is before this gig. And amongst some other press that we'd done, yeah. right? The Scottish press got him immediately. And the first time they spoke to him, they're like, this is great. Jules Boyle from the Sunday Mail called me after the first interview and went, well, that's how you do that. And you're off and running, you know. So, but but we couldn't have planned that he was then. If I'd said, go and do a funny bit on that, and I'll get the Scottish Sun to put it in a new story. That that wouldn't have worked. Mm-hmm. That would have been yeah. ridiculous because he'd been like, thinking about it. It's not organic. So, but but so the, and then and then off you go from there. So he's the perfect example of you just go right. You you do you, and and we've got the bit nuts and bolts of it mm. behind. You know, and and it's there's a. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna demean the team that works behind an artist like that by saying. It's as simple as that. It's not. There's a lot of setup goes it into it. It simplifies the but process, doesn't it? It's just what I was saying. Like we can do the bit where we get it just to the point, and then you've got you've just got to hope that everything aligns behind it. Hmm. We uh, speaking about you mentioned earlier being right place, right time, and this is really jumping. But you're in a, a right place in the wrong time. <laughs> Talk to me about Boxing Day 2004. God, that is a jump. Um, yep, I was in I was in a Victorian guest house in the southwest of Sri Lanka uh, on holiday. Second time I'd been there. I'd, I'd gone the year before because a pal of mine had moved out there um, the year before, and uh, I'd gone out to visit him Christmas two thousand and three, <coughs> and he was staying in a wee place uh, on the beach. And so I went to visit him. I had, was able to take some time off and I went over for a month. I had a cracking time and decided to go back the following year. And I got out there the week before Christmas 2004. had a lovely week. Spent Christmas Day and Christmas night in a, a sort of beach bar called... Uh, it's called Vijaya, W-I-J-A-Y-A. Look up online if you ever get to go. It's fantastic. It's got a lovely beach with a kind of natural lagoon with a, a, right. a reef. And it's got a rock in the bay, which is called, you call it frog rock, because it looks like a frog sat on mm. a lily pad. Huge big thing. Anyway, uh, I had a great night, went to bed. I was supposed to stay in a place on the beach, right on the beachfront that I'd stayed in the year before. And it was two wee rooms that a guy had put on the front of his house. And it was like a tenner a night or something. Uh, and it was like just paradise. And I'd stayed there for the whole month, the year before, but I couldn't get in there. Somebody else had taken it. So I was staying in this other guest house a bit further down on the next beach. So I wake up about probably like 10 to 9, Boxing Day morning, and I'm thinking, ah, oh, I could do with some breakfast. I'll maybe just walk down the beach to my mate's bar, get some brekkie there. And then I thought, nah, it's a bit early. I'm just going back to sleep. Went back to sleep. About half hour later, 20 past nine, I just, I, I wake up to, I can only, I've only ever been, really been able to find a description that people understand. It's like a, a scrap yard, a breaker's yard, just like, <laughs> yeah. right? uh, and a load of shouting and 
I'm on the first floor and I sort of wake up, I'm like, what the hell's going on? And they're all shouting, cyclone, cyclone. So I get up and I look out on the wee balcony and I, I'm just, I can't, I can't really take in what I'm seeing. They had a restaurant at the front of this. So the, the, the house is slightly raised. Then there's a flat garden. Then they had a restaurant, two-story sort of building at the end where they had the, the restaurant bit. Mm. And then there's a steep beach that goes down at about 45 degrees. And then maybe, you know, 20 feet is the flat bit of the beach. Then there's the sea. If you're a golfer, you could hit a half a sand wedge into the sea from where I am, right? A firmly hit sand wedge would get you there. So less than 100 yards. So I'm on the balcony. All I can see is all of the, 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 the restaurant building at the front has been damaged. All of the furniture and rubble and stuff has come into the garden. And the water's right up to the front of the building. I'm like, what? I don't understand because there's a 20-foot drop from the beach. It's not a beach you swim in because it's steep. Mm. You swim at the next one up that's flat. I, I cannot take this in. And then the next thing I see just, I mean, roofs of houses floating past on the on the ocean. I'm like, this is Seems like a bad dream. It was. It was. It was like a bad. You've, it's like you've woken up into just a completely different reality. So, but but we couldn't see beyond our. It was kind of you know there was walls around the, this, where this building's garden was. So I couldn't see really what was going on, but my mate, I, I just had a really bad feeling about it. Clearly something unusual's happened. Mm -hmm. So my friend lived in a, his own house just a, along the road. So I thought I'll go out and see what he's up to and I, and I go out onto the road which is behind the buildings and I, it's all hell's broken loose all the people that live there are out in the street shouting and wailing and you know my house has just been destroyed and all. I'm starting to sort of take in I don't get as far as his house he's walking back up the street pale in tears the bar has been hit fuck so at this point we're starting to understand this is we don't know it's global. We don't know it's like as huge as it is, but something's really bad's happened at this yeah. point. So yeah, just from there, it becomes a day of trying to understand. Because we thought, is this just the start of it? Is there, is there more coming? More coming. Was well, there more? You usually yeah. get a form aftershock well, or something. There, there was, I think there was three or four waves where we were. Mm. I mean, I was really lucky because two things. If I'd got up when I was going to get up and walk along the beach... To where I was going to have breakfast, I would have been in it, mm. and I, I stress I wasn't in it. I was not physically in danger, as it turned out. I was in the right, specifically well, right place. I mean, I would say it's a bit of a reach. To I, I get what you're saying. But you were in fucking danger, like just well, I didn't, being there. Right, but I didn't know I was. Let's right. say that. Yeah. Okay. So my my experience of it was very different from right, anyone who <clears throat> had to deal with the physical reality of being in the water. I, uh, that wasn't mine <clears throat> but um, but if I'd stayed in the place that I'd wanted to stay in I met the, a couple who had the room that I wanted and they'd woken up underwater with Fuck the building sake. down around them That's and they were, they were all beaten up uh, they were they were walking but they were 
and one of the, the girl had got out by a, a, a washing line that had been tied to a tree outside appeared in front of her under the water and she grabbed it and pulled herself out and the guy had ended up 20 feet up a palm tree that's some like reverse final destination shit, isn't it? Yeah. Something like presenting you with a, uh-huh. an escape and route. The guy, yeah, and the guy that owned the place had had to rescue his mum out of the water and all this. God. So it was pretty hairy, and uh, we ended. We went to we went to a friend's house inland, and oh, we stopped at a, we stopped at a temple because we don't, we don't know what the hell's going on, right? Mm. And I texted a friend of mine. I texted, I texted my brother because he was at home with my parents at the time. And I texted my flatmate and I texted the friend of mine who lives in Dubai who would probably be up before any of them because mm-hmm. the time difference was less. And I just said, bit of bother. I thought this is probably going to be something on the, new, on the news. I just said, bit of bother with a bit, big wave. I'm all right. I'll text you later or whatever. And my friend from Dubai, my brother texted me saying, Roger that, which is his style. Uh, and my friend in Dubai called me and said, yeah, it's the biggest earthquake in 40 years. But I was, I was in London when it happened uh, for Christmas. I remember just being unable to take in kind of yeah. what I was seeing. You ended up, how do you pronounce the name of the town? Gaul. Gaul. So you founded Friends of the Gaul Project 2005. Yeah, it was... Because, I'd, because I had my friend lived there, I knew there was a lot of people from from there and expats who were involved in sort of tourism or, you know, just businesses and stuff there. Mm. So while I, I stayed for a week after this and uh, they were starting to do stuff to help, just, you know, there was one guy that lived in a village where 500 people had died, you know, and just helping whatever they could do. But it started to coalesce into a bit more of a... It, it quickly... They they went right. Well, I've got a warehouse, so we if we can get some food, we can mm. store it there and distribute it. Or I've got a van, so I can help you run it out, or whatever they could do. And I just thought, well, there's not an awful lot I can do here because I don't really know the landscape. But I'll go back and I'll try and raise some money to help them do what they were doing. And because it was going to be a while before the big agencies would be in, yeah. And by that stage, obviously, we knew it was huge. So I came home on the New Year's Eve. Uh, and we went straight in. I got picked up off the plane. And we went straight into my office and we started researching how to actually properly do this. So, um, and, and meanwhile, a friend of mine had called me and his wife worked on BBC Breakfast. And she said, we haven't done a story like yours yet. Do you want to come on? And I just went on and did 10 minutes, about two weeks in. And my phone didn't stop ringing from the second I came off air for about six months. Oh, that's good. People just wanted to help out and donate and yeah. stuff. The first call I got, I thought it was going to be my mum when I switched my mobile back <laughs> on. And it was a woman at uh, an old folks' home in Bournemouth. I'd, I'd, in the time it would take me to get out of the studio, outside the building, I switched my phone on. She'd called, called the BBC switchboard, got my number, and <laughs> said, right, we're doing a coffee morning uh, tomorrow. We'll send you the money. Why Why do you think that story captured the, the planet's imagination so much? Because 
it was horrendous. Like I even remember in two thousand and five, like February, going to a benefit night at the Pavilion Theatre, and I remember, and there was such a big fuss made about it, and I remember even thinking at the time, not as consciously as I would reflect on it now, but I remember thinking at the time, why is everybody getting involved in this? Not that I didn't want it to, mm. but you're like. Natural disasters happen often. People can get charity fatigued, but it was something that like the whole planet just got behind. I don't know. It's a really good question. I, I know what you mean. I think. I think that uh, with a natural disaster, as opposed to something, it, there's there's no politics in it. Mm. It's just a terrible, unfortunate thing that happened. Yeah. I think the fact that it happened at Christmas would resonate with a lot of people, even though. You know, Sri Lanka's a Buddhist majority mm-hmm. of Islam kind of, you know, there's a, there's a, it's not like a Christian Christmas type country. Mm-hmm. But but I think that maybe resonated. Who knows? I, I think mean, a lot of the images we tended to see here were people having Christmas on the beach. Mm. That was a lot of representation I, I remember seeing. And maybe, yeah, it's probably a mix of all these things. And then I think, I mean, from our point of view, it wasn't, I didn't set out to, you know, oh, we can... And I did come across people in the following year. We set, we set a year on it. We'll do this for a year. I didn't want it to become my job. Yeah. Although some people I know who got involved at that point did go on to work for big age agencies and stuff. They found their calling through it. I, yeah. I knew it wasn't mine. I just had a bit of leeway to do it. It's and, a lot of money that you And also got. I had a network of people who were absolutely doers. I mean, just some of the most capable people who switched from their normal lives into, yes, we can do this. If you if you can get me 10 grand, mm-hmm. I can rebuild five houses because I'm a fucking builder. Yeah, yeah. And I know the local builder and I've got the team of guys ready to go. And, I, and, I, and we've already identified the houses where the foundation is solid enough to build on mm-hmm. and we've cleared it with the local people. So you could, so I, we could go and we became a little conduit for uh, a minority, let's say a minority of people who, who wanted to go through a, a route because there was no, you know, there wasn't 30% of our, income as a UK organisation going to pay our salaries. We weren't getting paid anything. Mm-hmm. It was going straight through us to where it need and where it was needed. So they they had got together into this sort of organisation called Gold Project. And so we just set up as a as a way to get money, whatever money was available. And we just found we didn't really go and chase it. It just some of the media that, that we did we just found Hundreds and hundreds of amazing people who sent us, you know, anything from 50 to 100 to 10 grand. You know, people were doing big events, people were doing small events. I found myself at all sorts of strange functions. Paul Weller did a gig for us. Did he? Nice. Because I got a call after I'd been on BBC Breakfast. A guy called me who said, I was in Sri Lanka at the same time, but I'm a mate of... Paul Wellers and he's called me and said I'll do a gig for them <laughs> Nice. so about a month later I found myself at a venue in East London introducing Beth Orton who was supporting so I'm standing there going 
what, how is this happening? What is actually happening right now? It was surreal. Did you feel that this? Because you might be reluctant to answer this, but that's when that comes from such a genuine place of good intentions. It's really altruistic. Did you feel that you get a kind of wee kick, kickback, karma wise, off of that? Because I feel like doing something like that. No, I nah. had no. Because the way I believe the, the, the no, world that's works. That's how I felt. I felt I had survivor guilt. Did you? Yeah. Ah, yeah. Massively. Do you still? Do you? Do you? Is that in the past, or do you still yeah. kind of deal with it? No, I'm. I'm okay with it now. It's been a long time. It's 16 years, I think now. But yeah, I prob. I was never. I was never. Uh, I never went to see anyone. Mm. Just um, wasn't really a done thing back then, it was just it? Wasn't, and it wasn't. Yeah, I probably should have. Yeah. But I reckon I had some kind of level of PTSD for oh, about, fuck me. No, for about uh, six months. Absolutely no doubt in that. Like that. Because I was very much... I'd, I was speaking to somebody, just a friend of a friend, and I was saying, I've got this very strange feeling that I'm... You know that hyper-real feeling you sometimes get mm-hmm. when your adrenaline's going? Yeah. Or something either really exciting or really weird's happening, and you feel like you're just... You're absolutely in it. You're very present, and the world looks a wee bit different. Mm-hmm. Almost looks like you're in a fisheye lens or something, and you're aware of every little thing. I felt like that for six months. God. And he said to me, "What was the? There was a word he used for it, and I can't remember. But he said there's some people spend years trying to reach that state. Mm. And I'm like, I don't want to be in this state. It's fucking exhausting. No, I wouldn't like that. I, I suppose maybe the, the fundraising and channeling that energy into something positive would have been your not a, an ideal substitute, but a substitute for some form of counselling or therapy. It, uh, maybe, but it wasn't really that. And I, and as, as I say, I didn't feel. You know, I go back to saying, I, it turns out I wasn't in. I wasn't actually in danger. I was in the right place. I wasn't physically hurt, and. I didn't go into raising the money. If I hadn't known the people that I knew, you know, sometimes you just spot a situation, you go, actually, I can do something here. Yeah. And for some people it was, I want to go and put up a temporary shelter. I want to go and help dig the rubble off the road. You know, but that wasn't, I didn't see it like that. I'm like, there's lots of people doing that, but maybe if I can go and raise some money, it can... Mm-hmm. I, I can see how this can work with the people that are involved on the ground and the people that I know. And so in the end, I mean, you know, we the, the amounts of money are not really the point, but what we managed to do in, in one village, we rebuilt 100, uh, about 100 houses. So, and they went up and I saw them and I knew who was handling the money yeah. and I knew who was building them. And so... I never felt uncomfortable in the situation. I don't see it. It, it. it wasn't really putting myself out, particularly beyond the fact that pop music took a yeah. second. You know. Well, you're an essential conduit for those forgetting. I'll, t- I'll, that I'll just done. tell you the end of it, where I came out of that strange feeling, was it was the the weekend of the seventh of July, which was the weekend at the, the London bombings. <clears throat> On the, I think it was a Friday. It was a Friday. Uh, and I played fives that night. It was so a... I was in London in my office. Something had happened. We were a bit worried about one of the people that worked for me at the time because she was getting that route right. in. She came in. But anyway, that afternoon, I was getting in a car to go to a wee festival in Norfolk with 
a bunch of the people who had been in I'd been in Sri Lanka with just coincidentally. We left London like thinking, Jesus Christ, would you know, I wish situations would stop actually trying to kill me. <laughs> so we went to this wee festival and we just let rip. We really went for it. I lost my phone that had all the, this is quite kind of prophetic, but I lost the phone that had, had all the pictures from Sri Lanka on it. It was a wee um, Motorola flip phone mm. that I loved, but I'd left it charging somewhere and it disappeared. Uh, I stayed for like two days longer than I was going to stay. I was completely uncontactable and AWOL from the office. <laughs> Where the hell's Gordon gone? But I just went into the wilderness. Mm. And when I came back from that, I was like, all right, okay, that's, Aye. that's done. Kind of expelled a wee yeah. bit of that. And then we wrapped, we wrapped it up at the end of the year as well. Mm. So it wasn't like... Do you ever have any contact for anybody that's still over there? They must feel as if they owe you some sort of, no. or loads of people. No, well, I was one step removed from the people who actually were getting the, the benefit mm. um, quite deliberately because, you know, there's the whole sort of, it wasn't about me or any of us. Yeah. It was just about, and it wasn't just us. There was lots of, Lots of help coming in. Yeah. And it was just, you just stayed out of it. You don't want to complicate it. There's the danger you know, of straying into the territory of thinking you're the white saviour. Like, yeah, um, I, that was never. Yeah. And I'd saw a little bit of it and I had to have a word with a couple of people like, you know, you can't, you can't promise anything. Yeah. You can't, you know, you just have to be really careful because imagine somebody coming into your neighbourhood and going, it's all right, we're here, we'll fix everything. Now, You'd be really grateful for the help, but you don't want them strutting around like a fucking... Yeah, <laughs> you know? as if you should be like really, sorry, yeah. deferential to them. Or... So I'm, I'm in touch with a lot with people who were involved and we speak now and again, but, you know, it was a, it was a while ago. Yeah, I had to... It's one, one I had to bring up, although there was, there's no kind of simple way to segue from talking about the rise of Lewis Capaldi to, oh, by the way, let's talk about that tsunami. That was an absolute clanger. That was uh, not when I thought that question was coming. I know, right, so I like to catch people off guard. <laughs> uh, for, I mean, for that point on then, are, are you, you're, is it, oh, fuck, is Bristol or Bath that you're in? Near what, Bath. Near yeah. Bath, aye. Bradford or Raven, uh, what, near Bath. What point did you move there? We moved there in, I think it's 11 or 12 years ago. Uh, my wife's mum lives in Bath. Right. And might be a very beautiful place, isn't it's it? It's lovely, yeah. Well, we, we yeah, Bradford Navin's just a, a little town outside. So my wife's mum's from Bath and we had we had our daughter and we just didn't want to stay in London anymore. So Yeah. And she the mum wasn't very well at the time, so we thought well we'll just do it now. So we've stayed there and it's great. And is it easy for you kinda I mean you can work from anywhere, can't you? Like you're sort of yeah weekly or bi-weekly email will come out explaining what everybody's kind of up to that you can be anywhere doing doesn't you? matter and I think it's particularly lockdown and not and, and everybody working from home kind of showed there was there was definitely a segment of people who were a bit sniffy about maybe you weren't in the meeting and you were phoning phoning in mm -hmm. oh why hasn't he you know spent 150 quid to come to London from the meeting and we're not you know on expenses that he doesn't have uh, but after it's got a lot easier after lockdown because everyone's like, oh yeah, we totally get it. Yeah, <laughs> and why would why would you can make everything just a lot easier for everybody? And a lot of the press work from home now as well. Yeah, a lot of them don't even have offices anymore. But most of them work from home. So well, let's get a wee kind of look at the dynamic of your current work setup now. I'll, I'll list off the names of artists that I know that you work with. 
if there's any that are sort of for the past, you can let me know if there's any I'm missing out. We have to give a shout to Luke Lavolpe. Yes. Top ledge. man. Luke's been on the podcast before. Um, everybody's one of the best performing episodes, actually. Is it really? It is. Uh, yeah. Does he get a royalty? Uh, he'll get fuck all. He'll get a he'll get a, a handshake for that. We'll have a chat about that. <laughs> uh, we've got Luke, Dylan, John, Thomas, another yes. pal of mine. Obviously, Lewis. Yep. Joseph, amazing. Still working with James Bay. Yes. I mean, but I absolutely love James Bay. New stuff's brilliant. He's, he's such a good lad. He's amazing. Yeah. We've got Tamsin really yes. desperate to get an interview sorted. What a voice. Uh, absolutely incredible. I saw that she's writing with David Snedden. Uh, yeah, apparently so. Mm. Um, she's in good hands there with some of the hits he's churning it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, really excited about her. She has just got a stunning voice, and she's a, lo- a lovely person. Everything, everything is, is right. Do you know that that's kind of what I've picked up. You only see somebody through the prism of what they present on mm. their social media. But I just kind of looked at me like you just seem really lovely. So you're yeah. kind of you're rooting for somebody even more. Yeah, she's been out there doing festivals all around the country this summer, and yeah, there'll be some some new music coming before the end of the year. We've got Nina Nesbitt just supporting Coldplay. Not actually working with Nina at the moment. Are you not? No, right. I'm not on that one. Okay. This album round. Well, well Nina, sorry. I love that, Nina. No, no, she's sh- fantastic. I saw her at uh, Transmit. George Ezra? Uh, no, not, no, I haven't done, I, haven't, I did the last album. Right, okay. Ah, so um, I'm, I'm I'm not far off then. No, you're not, you're not wrong. But uh, I mean, the thing with my off. job is you get hired or you don't get hired yeah. and you can't take any big umbrage at it it's just you know what what is the job that needs doing at yeah. that time so how Ava McDonald in the past yeah I did well uh I did the most recent album yeah Amy's great I yeah. started working with her she's she's one of the ones that you sort of you've got some some artists that you you sort of hang your hat on as a as a career kind of yeah moment I mean I she's amazing isn't she well getting that first because it's not it wasn't it's not, she's never been like an artist that's in in a in a particularly like she's not she's never ridden a trend it's mm-hmm. never relied on a trend it's just she's a great singer with great songs and people have responded to that uh that well bo give bo anderson a mention oh the lovely bo yes she's great isn't she? she's just done a thing uh where she went in the studio and recreated a queen song oh did she and had to play it for Roger Taylor. Oh, no way. Can you imagine? That is mental. You can get it on huh. YouTube. Yeah, I will it be getting went, that. I think it just went up a couple of days ago. Um, then we've got Dylan John Thomas as well. Yep. He's just going from strength oh, to strength. Dylan's he? flying. He's really flying. Well, you've had him on. You know, you know what he's like. He's just... He's an absolute natural. He's a fantastic guitar player. Ah, he's amazing. I mean, his guitar playing is exceptional. Mm. And he's just... There's... The songwriting is really quite extraordinary. I think mm. he's, I think he's got got a really interesting career ahead of him. With anybody that's that's interested in these artists, former blethered guests, we've had Luke Lavolpe, Amy McDonald, Bo Anderson, and Dylan John Thomas twice. Um, did speak to Joseph at Transmit. I'd love that's somebody I'd really love to ah, speak yeah. to. Fascinating guy, yeah. and he's he's just amazing. Well, he's another one. I mean, he's like he's just brilliant. He's just I mean, he's just, just so so all. good. He does it all. He plays everything. The voice, uh, and he is a very, very nice guy. A which very I funny a... sense of humour. Aye. Not in the not in the same kind of way as Lewis, but just 
I think we've got that in Scotland. You know, we, we revel in making each other laugh, <laughs> yeah. even at our own expense. In fact, especially at our own expense. <laughs> yeah. And that's what I love it. That's I, I work artists from all over the world and that's great. But if we get, if I get a Scottish one hmm. that you can see has just got it, it's like, it's so exciting. Like this bit, with Tamzine is so exciting. This yeah. bit with with Dylan is so exciting. This bit with Luke, it's different because I manage him. It's not just a PR, but it's exciting because you're going, God, people are going to fucking love this. I, well, I was saying to, saying, to, saying to Luke fairly recently that it's just a case of getting reaching the tipping point for him. Of just getting, it's like getting more and more people in the funnel and eventually the bucket overflows and then everybody's involved and then it's like people will look at him and go oh this guy's just an overnight success and it's the same old yeah, story yeah. like no none of them are they've yeah. been grafting in, in the shadows for, for a years. long time and you know the great thing about that is when he goes on stage at Transmit and gets a great audience you know he's going to pull it off you know it's yeah. going to be great so we, you know I'll put it in front of anyone but you know, it's that's nothing is nothing is a given. You've got to uh, graft. You've got to absolutely graft it and write the songs and get the gigs and looks looks lucky as well because he's got all his very sound but mental brothers at right oh at his god. back as well. Like a they're like a fucking mafia, aren't they? <laughs> oh my god, it's something else. I spent the weekend with them at Transmit. It's absolutely hilarious. Hi, good bunch of lads. They're good. They're, they've they've all got their. Well, I was going to say they've got their heads screwed on right. That's actually not true. No, I do they fuck? But they've got their heads screwed on wrong, but in such a way that they're all on his side and looking out for him yeah, and yeah. each other. So, yeah. I like that. Well, but is there anybody else coming through that's that's um, you think is on the cusp of, of coming to people's attention? Well, if you'd asked me that question without saying it, I would have said Tamzine. It's mm. the one probably that people are going to hear a lot about next year. So I've, I've heard that for... For you and loads of other different people, none of which are connected. That's good. Um, which I think speaks speaks volumes. And yeah. she has. Uh, I apologise to any artist that I've just started working with that I can't remember at this moment. It's just my mind's gone yeah. completely I, blank. Well, he's too the PTSD for the tsunamis. <laughs> I can't <laughs> it's, even blame that. It's, it's coming back. I'll send you a voice note of all the people I've just completely forgotten to mention. Aye, and we'll get interviews sorted. We are them um, tonight. Glover in Glasgow. Um, Celtic are playing Real Madrid, but Joseph is doing a yeah, and a scheduling error yeah. of it, some. It'll still it'll still be amazing. I'm gutted. No, I can't make it. it. It went the tickets went in about ten seconds, mm. and you know I mean touch for him, as bizarre as it is to say, is a tiny gig for him now. He played the played the academy the last show. Yeah. So yeah, um, he's got new music coming and. Um, yeah, it's cracking. He's, I'm looking forward to that. Mate, this has been good. Thanks I'm glad, much. glad we've done we this. We've covered a lot of ground there. I know, we have. It's, your, um, your listeners are going to be going, what the fuck? <laughs> but that's, these are the conversations that are interesting. It's like, all right, so tell me about that time you've worked with thing, mate. Anyway, what about the tsunami? I don't that's, know. That's, those are, that's how conversations go. No, well, it's been great, mate. So thanks again for coming thanks on. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening. And we'll be back again for another episode of Blethered, same time next week. Cheers.
Blethered was written, recorded and produced by Sean McDonald in association with The Big Light. Music and post-production by Brian McAlpine and for more information, go to thebiglight.com. If you like this podcast, please check out all our other series including Talk Media, Natural Wonders, You Could Start a Fight in an Empty House, Talking Derry Girls, Brave Your Day, The Tartan Noir Show, Double Scotch, Great Scott, Trust Me I'm a Leader, Unearthed, A Sonic Hug and Old School. All on the Big Light, Scotland's podcast network. From the Big Light Studio.